All right, everybody, this has been something that I have to apologize for not having talked about more in the past, as I realize that I'm coming, I'm coming to it late. <laughs> and, and in all honesty, this, this issue is pretty complicated and I really wanted help working through it myself and helping you guys work through it. So I brought on a special guest, Neil Shenvey. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about critical race theory, justice, injustice, racism, all these issues. And especially, and here's the heart, being biblical. Okay, this isn't a talking point. This is a commitment that you guys know across my channel, this is all that I'm about, is I wanna think biblically about everything. And so we need to think biblically about this stuff because in my view, the things that are going on in our culture dealing with racism and injustice, they're leveraging like a real serious problem, mm -hmm. a genuine problem, a problem we have to we have to look at honestly. We, if we deny it, we just have a plank in our eye. But I think it's a distorted understanding of the problem and solutions in our, in our, uh, in our culture, in our policies, like our mm -hmm. laws, but, but even, more harmful in our the way we interact with each other as humans. The solutions are actually causing more problems, in my opinion. So uh, Neil Shimmy is going to help us break it down. And thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Neil, maybe you could tell us just a little bit about yourself before we jump into this stuff. Sure. Thank you, Mike, for inviting me. Uh, I grew up in Delaware, and I have a wonderful family, wonderful parents, but I was not raised in a Christian home. I became a Christian in graduate school while doing my PhD in theoretical chemistry. And that's where I got interested in apologetics, which really became a passion of mine as a postdoc. So I, we went to, my, my wife and I went to Yale, where she did her MD. And then we moved to uh, Durham, North Carolina, where we currently reside. And I quit my job as a theoretical chemist at Duke University about six years ago, maybe seven years ago now, to homeschool our four kids. So that's what I do currently, in addition to doing a lot of reading on these topics. Yes, and um, okay, we're gonna launch right into content and we'll learn more about you and why you're obsessed with this issue. And I'm glad you are, because yeah. we need some people that are obsessed with it, that think clearly about it and can break it down with commitment to scripture more so than a political party. Um, so first off, let's start with this. Before we talk about solutions to a problem and how we think that these solutions have issues, we should talk about the problem itself. And that mm -hmm. is the issue of racism, injustice. Um, start off with this, if you would, Neil, how bad is the historical problem of injustice in the US? And for my viewers, like, if you're inclined to reject critical race theory, if you're inclined to say like, you know, being woke is a joke, that kind of thing, uh, we should start here before we go there. And if you would, please help us out with that. Sure. So the history of race in the United States is pretty appalling. So first of all, what is race? And race is, as we currently understand it today, is a social construct. It's not a biological reality. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, think about how we conceptualize race. We talk about someone being black or white or Asian. Well, those are not biblical categories. The Bible recognizes ethnicity, you know, that your, your, your ancestry, your language, your culture, but it doesn't recognize race because it, race in the modern sense, like black or white or Asian, is just this grouping that we've developed, right? My favorite illustration of this would be, we call people Asian. And, you know, I'm half Indian. I've been to visit my relatives in India, and I'm like, you know, Asia is actually a pretty large place. So to call this whole set, yeah, this whole set of people Asians is just, when you think about it for a second, you're like, that's ridiculous. I mean, these were huge nations 
with very different cultures that were often at war with each other, and yet to us, they're Asians. Mm -hmm. Or say black. So it, it turns out that in the US today, the average African-American person uh, is 80% African ancestry, but 20% European ancestry due to, unfortunately, a lot of rape that went on during slavery. And so uh, because of that, the average black person has 20% quote-unquote European genes. Well, that means that if a black man marries a white woman and they have kids, if the kids are dark-skinned enough, we will race them as black, right? Well, oh, they're, they're, black, they're a black kid, right? But the funny thing is that quote-unquote black child will have a majority of European DNA. So it just shows you how it's a, that race is a, is a social construct, it's a social category. So in that sense, it's imaginary, but it's real in the sense that it has a real salience. We notice it. So in the same way that, um, say, a college student, what is a college student? That's a social category. It's a social construct, right? Clearly, it, there's not like something that changes about you, your ontology, because you're a college student, but... It's a category that's real. It'll determine whether or not you can deduct certain things on your taxes, right? It'll depend if you if you dress a certain way as a college student is supposed to dress. People will notice, oh, he's a college student. So, uh, or another example would be money. Money is a social construct. Little bits of green paper are just bits of green paper, and yet they have tremendous real significance. If I hand someone a little bit of paper, they will give me a car. So. To say race is a social construct is not to say that it is uh, irrelevant. It is very much still relevant. Now, mm -hmm. second thing to realize is that race is not an innocent social construct. So race was constructed in the modern sense around the 17th century in the U.S., in 18th century, in order to justify white racial dominance. They wanted to justify chattel slavery. So they created a hierarchy with white Europeans, whites on the top, and Native Americans maybe in the middle, and then blacks on the bottom as an inferior race. And in fact, 19th century scientists toyed with the idea of what's called polygenesis. They actually rejected the Bible's teaching that there was one you know, human pair, Adam and Eve, that gave rise to all human beings. They said, no, there's no way that the black race and the white race could share a common ancestor. They must have come from different first pairs. That was an idea that Jefferson toyed with, right? Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. So the, 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 and so the point is, when we developed race, it was not this just happenstance that people happened to group these people in certain ways. They intentionally created a hierarchy that explained why whites were allowed to, or that blacks were allowed to be enslaved. Yeah. Um, so, what, so what you're saying yeah. is there's like a, there's like worldview issues related to human nature mm -hmm. that are actually giving rise and justification to the mistreatment and injustice of individuals in the culture. And, right. and again, and we need to understand the actual real injustice that's happened in the past. That's going to help us also understand why things like critical race theory, um, some of the some of the policy decisions, but even more so the way we view each other just in practical life, that this is currently still being affected in ways that are it's like in, in in my view injustice as a solution to injustice instead mm -hmm. of like a biblical view of things so um yeah so again uh, back to the history of it all like how how bad was this in the past for those who maybe don't realize it because most a lot of us realize it but i've actually talked to people who just they don't they don't get it 
Yeah, I mean, so first of all, what we had in the U.S., U.S. slavery, chattel slavery, was wildly wicked and evil. I mean, we talk. I mean, sleep, we kind of realize that slavery was was evil, but I don't think we appreciate how evil it it was and is. So remember, recall that uh, U.S. slavery began through kidnapping. Blacks were kidnapped from Africa, ripped away from their families, their their relatives, their culture transported in chains aboard ships where I think a third of them died. In chains, brought to this new world, taken away from, again, all their culture, and then were put into perpetual bondage for life with their children being perpetually enslaved also. So remember, the Bible says that man-stealing, it says, that's the word that's used in, I think, Titus, uh, I think it's 1.8, but man stealing was—it's uh, called antithetical to the gospel. Yeah. So we have an entire system with millions of blacks that is predicated on this anti-gospel action that was that was lasted for two hundred years, more than two hundred years. So that was horrific. And Christians, uh, you know, some of them defended slavery and others rejected it and said and said, "Look, this is." From the earliest days, essentially, you're like, this is not compatible with the gospel. You know, this is not treating my neighbor as myself. And it's based on manslaying, kidnapping, and, and it was brutal. So uh, mm-hmm. th- and that, that was I would, bad. I would yeah. say even, even under old, because it's where people would go to justify slavery was Old Testament law, right? Mm-hmm. But even under the Old Testament law, this, the people involved involved at all in the slave trade, whether they were the ones kidnapping people, um, selling them, or those who are buying them and then enslaving, the, keeping them in, enslaved, they would all get the death penalty under the Old Testament law. You, you know, for kidnapping, the, the penalty was death. If um, there, there's all these rules that prevent the kind of thing that happened from happening, even sure. in Old Testament law. Uh, I did it, my own studies on the topic of slavery in the Old Testament, and it was just shocking that people don't realize. Yeah they would be killed under the old Testament law yeah. and it would, it would preserve um, it would, it would keep people back from that, that sort of race based uh, slavery. Yeah. Yeah. So that was that I think we realized slavery was horrific and bad. And then, but then we said, well, but then, then there was emancipation and then there were, so that, so that, so that made things better, but immediately after emancipation, so with, for, for, during, uh, before emancipation, uh, before the civil war, in fact, you had the Supreme Court decisions like Dred Scott um, saying, okay, uh, slaves are slaves and, and have no right to freedom, even if they're, uh, they're brought to a free state. Now, why is that? So their reasoning was this. This is how they, how they justified saying Dred Scott was still a slave, despite being uh, living in, I think, a, a free territory and a free state for a little while. And he's still a slave. Why? And their decision was because... The black man has no rights, which the white man is bound to accept or to respect. Sorry. So their decision was that was their that was the basis for their decision. So we have this wildly wicked reasoning that is enshrined in law and justified by a Supreme Court decision. So thank God slavery was ended legally uh, after the Civil War. But then after that. After Reconstruction, in the period that's called Redemption, you have it, which were the were, so Reconstruction was uh, the people trying to, the North trying to um, incorporate slaves back into society and to to better their lot. 
And but then after that period, there's a lot of politics going back and forth. But after that period, eventually the North pulled out and the South tried uh, under what a period called redemption, where they tried to basically go back in some sense to the old system. And they began passing laws called black codes that would criminalize all kinds of behavior. So really things like loitering, you know, would be criminalized so that blacks who had been slaves could, under this very flimsy pretext, be charged with a crime, be sent to jail, and then through a program called convict leasing, they would be leased out to people that were often former plantation owners so they would to, to work for free. So, so effectively, just, they're just re-enslaved. Right, just more exactly. Now, what, about what year was this that this was going on? Those oh, gosh. Let's see. The Black Codes. Oh, I made this wrong. Uh, so it's a, it's a late 1800s. Um, I think the first Black Codes, don't quote me on this, please, but maybe 1877. Uh, I know. We so will skewer you if you get this I should wrong. have had my notes in front of me. <laughs> uh, but the, the Black Codes, I believe, began in 1877. Okay. Um, and, then, and that would then shade into uh, – and then um, – that would shade into Jim Crow laws later that were, again, legalized segregation, which were the precedent for that was a court case called Plessy versus Ferguson, um, where uh, actually and uh, the term was actually, I believe, an octoroon named, uh, who was one eighth black intentionally went. And, and so there were laws saying you had that blacks had to ride in separate train cars from whites. And he challenged that law. So this isn't right. And the Supreme Court again said, no, it's okay because it's separate cars, but they're equal. So that phrase separate, well, but, separate but equal mm-hmm. yeah, came, became the justification for later segregation Jim Crow laws. Um, so so, in that, so that, in that period of black codes and then Jim Crow laws lasted up until basically until the well, Brown versus Board of Education, desegregated schools, and there's a series of court cases and then culminating in the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in the 60s. Um, so... When you think about our history, you have from roughly, roughly, this isn't quite accurate, but 1619, when, when not quite the first blacks arrived in the Americas, but that's the date people usually use. 1619, up until 1960, I guess, four, uh, I think that was when the voting right act was passed. Again, don't quote me on that. I'm, I'm done my homework. I'm sorry, guys. But you have that period of, what, 330, 40 years where you had some form of legal racism legalized white supremacy, not just mm-hmm. de facto, but de jure. According to the law, we had the you know immigration policy was shaped by white citizens. Well, whites could be naturalized citizens and non-whites could not. And the funny thing is you look at the court cases and you have the courts actually wrangling over what does, what does it mean to be white? So who is white? Who counts as white? Do you go with what scientists say? Do you go with what sociologists say? Do you go with common sense? And so you had people, and there were just horrible laws regarding miscegenation. Miscegenation was uh, the, the they, they prohibited the mixing of the races. There were anti-miscegenation laws. So you can you can dig up these court cases where you had a, a husband and wife hauled into court, and they would be questioning them to see what race they were, to figure it out. Like, is your is your skin bright enough to be counted as white is your hair too curly to be white? is it too is it curly enough that you're black do you associate with negroes that was one of the, the piece of evidence as to whether or not they were so they in, in, in the case i'm thinking of they had it was a man and a woman who were both like mexican descent and they couldn't figure out whether they were, they were white or black or or both but you and this is a married couple that you're trying to decide whether to throw them in jail 
mm-hmm. or, or, or illegitimize their marriage over what race they were when you can't even figure it out. So it was just, it would be a farce if it weren't so disgusting. So that's our history and it's, it's bad. Now there, I mean, there obviously were bright spots. There were people who, who prayed, there were Christians who prayed and, and begged God to end uh, legalized racism, to end the scourge. Um, and, and I praise God, he answered those prayers. Uh, but we can we can be honest about that history, both both the good and the bad. Yeah. You know, I'm not here saying America is the worst <laughs> nation mm-hmm. in the world. No, I, I, I love being an American. Yeah. But I'm saying that we're first and foremost, we're citizens of God's kingdom. Mm-hmm. Because of that, we can be honest about both the good yeah. and the bad parts of our history. Yeah. When I when I think about it, I, I mean, I honest, these are the things I think about. I think if I had been alive back then, mm-hmm. would I have had the guts and the clarity of biblical thinking to like really stand against that stuff. Not because I'm trying to earn points with some crowd or some group, but because of biblical principles. Like I, I hope, I mean, I want to say, yes, I would. I, I just hope I would have had the guts, but I think the real test is, do I have the guts to do it today? When I see things today that require that same clarity of biblical thinking, where I don't, I, I don't care what reasoning they're using. I know what the scripture says about like, mm-hmm all men of being of one blood and about yeah. how there being no, no difference between us. Um, the, the Bible kind of says, hey, hey, there's no difference between you guys. And then this, you might think, elevates everybody, but it actually puts everybody in the same boat of sinners who need a savior. Right. Um, but it does leave us still in the image of God. So great value, but great um, issues in humankind. But we're all equal in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope I would have had the guts. And I, I, I think the test, though, for us today is dealing with race issues, justice issues, um, all the topics like abortion or whatever fill in the blank uh, these are all the issues where today we can test ourselves am mm-hmm. i am i really do i have the guts do i have the courage and the biblical clarity to stand up on the right side of these issues mm-hmm. so um what about today like you know that's the historical stuff but it, you know for those who would just say well neil um it's a non-issue racism doesn't really exist anymore it's not really a thing um, what would your analysis of this be? And I know you've actually looked at studies and you've been trying to sort of from an analytical side say like, what is the current modern impact and situation dealing with uh, injustice? Sure. So I'd say, first of all, you know, I'm half Indian. My father's from India. My mother is is white. She's kind of mixed Irish and I don't know, French Canadian. Uh, but so, 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 so I am mixed race. I'm biracial and, uh, and I've been a Christian for 20 years. And Every church I belonged to was filled with loving, gentle, compassionate Christians who 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 embraced me, who embraced people of all races and ethnicities and cultures, who were invested in the community, doing uh, uh, ministry to homeless people, ministries to you know at-risk youth, ministries to immigrants, refugees. I mean, it's true of my church back in Berkeley, my church in New Haven, my church in North Carolina. So I, I have never experienced racism within the evangelical church at all. Right? I just haven't. Um, but here's the thing. That's my anecdotal experience. And when I ask a question like, is there racism in the U.S. today? I can't rely on my experience. I have to rely on things like surveys and data and experiments. And I'm a scientist by training. That's what I do. I learn to look past my own personal subjective experiences and looked and see if there's been systematic studies. And when there have been, they've shown that there is still indeed a lot of racism and racial discrimination and other things. So just a few examples. Um, Surveys 
on uh, several surveys, several big, good surveys show that in, around the year 2016, about one in six whites and one in 25 blacks were still opposed to interracial marriage. Right. So recently, in the last four years, one yeah. in six. Let me whites, just. Yeah. Here's a here's an anecdotal thing to add to your statistics. I did a video on interracial marriage not long ago mm -hmm. on, and I actually had to go to the archives to look up old arguments that people would use to try to say, here's where the Bible forbids interracial marriage. Sure. So that I would have something to respond to. Like, yeah. here's, here's your arguments for it. Now let me show how utterly stupid this is, you know? And so my video is like saying, yes, of course, there's absolutely no requirements. And it's, and it's a careful, thoughtful study. It deals with like rabbinic literature and understanding mm -hmm. the New Testament, all this stuff. It was a great video. I think I did a really good job blows my mind that in the comment section of the video there are people who are commenting that racism or not that racism excuse me they're, they're commenting uh interracial marriage is wrong and they're trying yeah. to like they don't build a case because you can't okay not biblically you can't build a biblical case you're a, you're just a racist and you're trying to project that onto your christian values yeah. but i'm blown away that there is even anybody in the comments who's saying these things and i would rather have everybody in the comments going of course that of course it doesn't matter of course it's not a big deal and yet i don't know people personally yeah who would say this but that doesn't just because my circle doesn't say it doesn't sure. mean nobody is yeah so and, and actually for a while my uh, collaborator dr pat sawyer and i were on um basically like a white nationalist email list we got added because they were angry with us because we wrote an article saying that race is social construct and that triggered them they, they didn't they were like no it's biological and i kind of without the arguments well no it's not they can show you just as i showed you like if a black person marries a white woman and they have a a child that's raised black that doesn't mean anything genetically and they got angrier and angrier and started just using the worst language and these terrible slurs and but but yeah we were on that list so we we're like yeah we saw that and then i gave this similar talk um in new orleans and a guy from, I won't say where, but a guy from uh, an area, I, I gave that stat about one in six whites are opposed to interracial marriage. And he, from the back, he goes, man, if that were true where I lived, I'd be like, God's on the move. Hallelujah. Because it's so much worse where he lives. It's like oh, probably wow. one in two whites would be opposing interracial marriage where he lives. So again, that bets. So I'm, my point is not to be like, oh, and by the way, the, the data, it shows a decline. So there's no question, even every year that the percentage goes down and down and down. And other surveys have shown that actually, you know, a, a larger percentage of blacks maybe are also opposing interracial marriage. It's always less than whites. But the point is, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not blaming anyone, right? I'm just saying that discrimination still exists. And actually, the last stat I'll give you is that another survey asked, is interracial marriage not just unwise? Because you could say, well, I'm not opposed to it necessarily, but, you know, there's a clash of cultures, whatever. But another question asked was, is it immoral? And 28% of Republicans said yes, it's immoral. So that's like, that's a... They asked, like, is abortion what? immoral? Is alcohol drinking immoral? And then is interracial... So it's clear that they were asking about the immorality. And 28%, and then 12% of Democrats said it was immoral. So it's not just Republicans. So the point is, again, we're not here to say that that you, <laughs> listener, are are opposing interracial marriage. The yeah. point is only that even if you think, even if you grant them, they're well, they're just following their culture. They're just you know doing what their tradition teaches them. But that's okay. But listen, they're not thinking biblically. That's the point. 
Mm-hmm. You have to say, look, the Bible does not support that cultural view, and it's time to reform your view, your anthropology, right? Because it's about yep. anthropology. Who is human? And the answer is all who are from Adam, right? All from Adam are human. We are all are made in God's image. And what's more, here's and this is a huge question for Christians. Who are your people? Who are my people? And the answer is primarily other Christians. They and actually I had a a pastor that I know who's Mm -hmm. very conservative and he actually said he had to discipline a member of his church for being anti-interracial marriage. And so when he did that, he actually had to discipline him, church discipline. But he preached a sermon, I guess, in one of those Sundays, and he got up on the pulpit and said, I'm going to prove to you that interracial marriage is unbiblical. And he said, why? Because the Bible forbids marriage uh, outside of the Christian faith. He's like, because you are the holy race. Right? Christians are the holy race. It's mm-hmm. not about your skin color. Yeah. It's about the color of the blood that redeemed you. Right, that, That's mm-hmm. what links you. Unites you is yeah. not white or black, but red. So that was a brilliant way for him to point out that, see, the reason you're thinking these wrong thoughts is because you haven't been reformed to Scripture's vision for redeemed humanity. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the, yeah. my only point <laughs> there, and then you can look at other data. So there have been studies of hiring discrimination, uh, Deva Pager uh, recently died. Um, she, I think she's from UPenn, a sociologist, but she did uh, some studies and a meta-analysis of hiring studies uh, using various different uh, different methodologies. That they were all trying to say, all things being equal, would a white candidate receive a callback over a black candidate? Yes or no, and to what extent? And she found that over two dozen studies over the course of three decades that the white candidates received a callback at rates that were roughly 40% higher than those of black candidates. And those, that number hasn't changed for about 30 years. Yeah. So, and that's, and that, and that's controlling for all their factors, controlling for resumes and they controlled for things, when it's from, they controlled for things like height, physical attractiveness, they matched them up. And so, so they were really trying to control this carefully. These are careful experiments. Mm-hmm. Um, and lastly, there are things like just gross measures of disparities, which are different, but the racial wealth gap is about a factor of 13. It's like 10 to 13 at various year to year. But yeah, white... but it's hard. It's hard to not see a connection between um, racism in our culture and society and and the and the wealth gap, at least some connection, because if you if you relate it to the idea that, OK, if me, if I was exactly me, but with dark skin, I'm applying for a job. And someone else equally, the other version of me with light skin applies, there's a much higher chance that he'll get that job than me. Uh, if that's yeah. what you're saying, right? Well, so what I would say is that it's, it, this is a tricky part. Um, it's hard to know to what extent the wealth gap and other, other disparities mm-hmm. are produced by various factors. So one factor would clearly be things like discrimination. Mm-hmm. Like you're black, I'm not going to hire you. Right. That's what Thomas Sowell calls discrimination too. Like he called it was one kind of just animus. I don't like black people. I'm not going to hire you. So clearly that would lead to you to get a lower income if you lose a job or you don't get a job, things like that. But then they're also what Thomas Sowell, who's a black economist, if you don't know who he is, he labels discrimination 1B and 1A. 1B would be you discriminate based on group characteristics. Um, so this would be things like uh, uh, you look at someone, you say, because you're black, it's more likely that you have a criminal record. Now that's you're like, oh my gosh, you're just stereotyping. Yeah, but it's statistically true, right? And so people do that because now 
why? Do they, is it because they don't want to hire a black person? Well, no, it's because they don't want to hire an ex-felon or an ex-criminal. Mm-hmm. Now, now, wait, so why does it matter? It's still terrible for the person. You, you go there and you're black and you'll get hired for no fault of your own. And I agree. But here's how it's relevant. For policy, how do you fix that? And the answer is unintuitive. If you allow employees to ask about your criminal background, they discriminate less. Because they're not trying to discriminate against blacks, they're trying to weed out ex-convicts. And so if they, so if you let them ask about whether you have a criminal record, then they discriminate less because they don't care about your race, they care about your criminal history. So the only point is, again, I'm not arguing, obviously for the black person, who goes into the job that gets discriminated against because of their race, they don't, it doesn't matter whether you hate them or not, they still didn't get the job. Mm-hmm. But in terms of policy, it matters how we can enact laws that will actually reduce the problem. And so yeah, then- like, last- so we can identify, and we're gonna talk about this today, is, is there's, a, there's the acknowledgement of a problem, and then there's mm-hmm. disagreements over what the solution is. Right. And, and sometimes over what the problem is even. And so we'll talk about this stuff today. And this is this is where it gets hugely important for today. Like right now in California, we're we're voting right now. And one of the one of the things on the ballot is they uh, they want to roll back anti discrimination laws mm-hmm. so they can so they can allow employers to discriminate yes. against white people. Right. Because they see this as the solution. Here's the solution. If we can if we can just create discrimination the other direction, we can balance things out. And of course, I see this as an unbiblical solution mm-hmm. to a to a real a real issue. But um, but anyways, please continue. Well, we'll get into that. So that's, last thing I wanted to say was the um, the other factor in disparities are things that are the legacy of racism. So for example, things like the wealth gap, we're pretty confident that some fraction of the wealth gap is due to the fact that because because of legal racism in the past, so legal racism, uh, Jim Crow laws, or then uh, racist practices like redlining, where this is a practice where um, bankers would not lend to qualified black loan seekers because they were living in a black neighborhood. So because of that, you had black neighborhoods that were impoverished, couldn't get loans, that became more and more impoverished. That was a result of a policy that was racist. Um, so, But because of that, you have a wealth gap that was due to actual de facto or de jure racism in the past. But then because you inherit wealth, you can't pass on your wealth to your children, mainly in the form of real estate and houses. So that's, again, a, a significant chunk of the wealth disparity because blacks, because of historic racism, even if they were no racism today at all, they still wouldn't be inheriting the same wealth from their parents. So yeah. my only point is this, and this is a point I try to make. If you were to say, uh, the, I only want to guard against two errors. It's all I'm qualified for. If you say that 0% of racial disparities, 0% are due to any form of racism and discrimination. It's 0%. It's not any de facto racism, no de jure racism, no legacy of racism. It's, there's, there's none of that at all in disparities. You're wrong. There's got to be some percent of disparities that are due to legacies of history, discrimination, whether intentional or even mm-hmm. implicit bias, whatever. It's not it just zero. Seems, to me, this just seems like the most common sense thing in the world. Right. I mean, I'm well, like, the, how hard is it to think that, okay, you have like, for instance, and you guys, this is part of our discussion here is we, I, I want to have Neil push back on things that may be in my head. So please push back if you disagree. But 
part of my thought is like, look, if you're, if you're, um, your family history is, uh, suffering from slavery and then there's liberation, you're not enslaved anymore yet. Here's the thing. Your family doesn't probably experience education historically mm-hmm. and doesn't probably value education that much. And even though racism might be, you know, or slavery is technically over, right? But that doesn't mean you have the same educational opportunities. And so you have these strikes against you that you're going to get more education. And so you're going to sure. probably have a historic lack of education. Like my family's an example. We have almost no college degrees, mm-hmm. you know, from my parents' generation and those above that. They know they came from uh, farming and, and, and rural communities originally. And just college just isn't seen as that important. There's almost mm-hmm. zero college degrees going back in time. This leads to less interest and awareness in, a, in the family of, of college even being important. It's like, I don't, I don't see the per- importance of it. I'll just go get a job. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and you could debate whether college is important or not, but um, especially nowadays. But, the, um, but, but I just see how like a culture in this family group that cares less about and, you know, education because they historically haven't experienced the value of it mm-hmm. will not push that value onto their kids. And so does that mean that racism is ongoing? I don't think so, but it does mean that there's an effect of it in the past, right. you know, and that this just seems like common sense to me. Yeah, I think it, it is. And I, I think that when it comes to policy is where we have to then tease out what's what. So if racial disparities are caused, well, but here's the point I want to make. You shouldn't say racial disparities, like in wealth, the average white family has like 11 times, 13 times the wealth of the, it's median. The median white family has 13 times the wealth of the median black family. Those disparities, radical disparities in say wealth or education or income, they're not 0% racism, Mm -hmm. Uh, either historical, legacy, discrimination, unconscious bias. It's not 0%, okay? It's gotta be non-zero. I mean, I'm a scientist. It it could be small, but it's not zero. The other extreme though, I'm saying it's also not 100%. It's not 100 uh, percent racism, meaning legacies and legacy racism and discrimination and uh, implicit bias. Now, why do I say that? Because you can find obvious counterexamples. So a, a really simple one would, would be the fact that uh, blacks are disproportionately represented in the NBA as players. Right. I forget what it's like. Seventy percent of NBA players are black. That as that's not because they're discriminating against whites and Asians and half Indian people. Like it's that's not at all. That disparity is because because I think the best players are black, and be, mm-hmm. because you said uh, certain sports are. Actually, there are a lot more. I'm just hypothesizing. I'm gonna hypothesize there are a lot more Indian and Pakistani cricket players in the U.S. Why do I say that? Because no one in the U.S. plays cricket except for people who grew up, say, in Pakistan and India and in in maybe in England and came to the U.S. Mm -hmm. So there is an element of just disparities can exist because different cultures like different things and Mm -hmm. emphasize different things. So the the NBA example seems like a great example to me of it just so happens. Okay, these are all the top NBA players. It just so happens that they're black like they're right. The their being black is not why they're in the NBA. Yeah. Right. Their skin color is not why they're in B- in the NBA. It's a it's a correlation, but not a causation thing. Yeah. And then and, and, and it's but it's it's caused in the sense that probably, uh, you know, basketball is more popular among blacks than whites. I don't know. I mean, something like that. It's 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 not because my point is this. It's not because of discrimination. No one is keeping white players out. No one is favoring black players. It just doesn't seem remotely plausible to me. And there are other examples, another silly example about racial disparities, not black and white, but 
Asians and Jewish people are vastly overrepresented in the Ivy Leagues. It's tremendous. I forget the actual numbers, but it's like a factor of six to ten more Asians in the Ivy Leagues and Jewish people in the Ivy Leagues than should be according to the representation of the population. That is not because there is some pro-Asian, pro-Jewish bias in the Ivy Leagues. It's mm -hmm. because, again, this is as a generalization, uh, Asian culture focuses a ton on education. It's super important to Asian, in Asian culture and similar with Jewish culture. Um, so we don't have to, so all, again, all I'm saying is it's not zero and not 100%. You say, well, who thinks that it's zero or 100? Well, this is where the California bill comes into play. So let me read to you from uh, Ibram X. Kendi's book. So Ibram X. Kendi is a very well-known uh, author. His book, Stamp from the Beginning, won the National Book Award in 2016, I think. And he's been he was given, I think, $2 million recently by the CEO of Twitter. Uh, he's going on speaking tours. His book, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist, was the number two best-selling book on Amazon in June behind Robin DiAngelo's book, White Fragility. So this guy's a major figure, and his book is called How to Be an Anti-Racist. I think he did a commercial with McDonald's recently. I saw recently. So he's a major figure. Well, listen to what he says here in his book, Stamp from Beginning, which again, won a book award, a national book award. He writes this. When you truly believe that the racial groups are equal, then you also believe that racial disparities must be the result of racial discrimination. Racial discrimination is the sole cause of racial disparities in this country and in the world at large. Yeah. I think we, so he, yeah, I mean, it's, it's obviously problematic. Your examples come in here. Okay. So that means that the only reason the NBA has yes. more black players than, than say white players is that the people so hiring the players are racists and they like, they just, per, well, I know you'll, you'll challenge that in a second, but the only yeah. reason is because of some sort of, uh, ethnic preference discrimination yeah some discrimination some, now, it could be some subtle way he would say but it's still yeah. discrimination yeah it's not and, now, and here's what's more i, I, I just want to say this real quick before you go on um for those who are con like you guys are really really talk you sound like a bunch of democrats who are really gonna harp on this stuff um i don't really care what we sound like but we are going to be talking today about why even granting understanding of all these things, um, you know, Black Lives Matter, the, the movement, not the phrase, okay, everybody, like, yeah, Black Lives Matter, amen. But the movement is something I don't, I don't think is something I could possibly sign up with. And, and I would think personally that the solutions that are being offered by those who are uh, championing social justice the most are solutions that themselves are discriminatory in an unbiblical fashion. Uh, we just wanna be, I just wanted to unpack the issues first before we explain where the where we diverge from on those things so yeah well that's a good point because i want to what i want to say to follow up on that is that everything that both of us have said to this point is completely compatible with a biblical worldview right we're, we're just discussing the history of race which you can look up in textbooks mm -hmm. we're discussing again the the degree to which Racism and racial disparities and racial history play a role in disparities. It's plays, like it's not zero. I'm saying it's not hundred. All I'm saying, I'm not saying it's eighty percent. I'm not saying it's twenty percent. I'm saying it's not zero and it's not a hundred. Okay, all of that, we can talk about all of that, and we should talk about all of that, but we're not using anything remotely related to critical race theory, because I'm gonna in the next hour, I'm gonna come down very hard 
against critical race theory. But my point I want to make is that you can have this entire conversation about race and discrimination and racism without invoking and even without with explicitly rejecting critical race theory wholeheartedly as I'm going to. So that's that we have to when you view all discussion of race as critical race theory, what I'm going to argue is that actually plays into the hands of proponents of critical race theory because they'll say, see, you can't talk about it unless you adopt our ideology. Yeah. And until yeah. we can talk about it as Christians and say, I reject your ideology, your ideology looks more and more like a worldview to me that I reject. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to talk about it from my Christian worldview, but I'm going to do it properly and rightly and biblically. Well, see, that is actually going to be the most effective in combating this ideology, showing you can do it correctly and rightly and addressing the very issues they want to address but failed to because they're working from a wrong worldview, a wrong framework, a wrong ideology. Yeah, yeah. Yep. That, this is what I'm excited about, man. <laughs> I get I get emotionally excited at the idea of saying, let's, let's cut through some of the fog mm. and let's think clearly and biblically about these topics. And that's, that's why I wanted to do this video, talk about these issues and bring on uh, Neil Shemby because you've been just obsessing on these issues for a long time now. And I think that you bring a balanced and thoughtful critique that is committed to scripture um, as the authority on these issues. So, so this is perhaps, if you guys are starting to get the idea, and we're about to find out more on this, this is why like um, some people, they'll merely cite a statistic. Statistically, we have, you know, black people suffering a disparity in this area. Therefore, mm -hmm. here's our solution to that problem. And why I would be like, wait, I believe your statistic. I am scared of your solution. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and from a Christian perspective, it seems when I've heard critical race theory explained, I thought this is so obviously wrong. <laughs> it's just so obvious. It shouldn't be hard for We shouldn't be confused about this issue. This is not a biblical or moral response to the things that are going on. So should we, should we talk about that? Should we um, me, delve into some, critical just, stuff? Let me give a teaser here. So let's Kendi here. So he said already, he said it clearly, it, it, racial disparities are only caused by racial discrimination in this country and in the world at large, page 11, the stamp from the beginning. What's more, he has three kinds of people. He has anti-racist who, who believe that. Okay, so anti-racist for him is someone who believes that racial disparities are solely caused by racial discrimination. Then he has what's called uh, racial, uh, sorry, racists who believe that racial disparities are the fault of black people. So you have racial anti-racist, it's all discrimination. Mm -hmm. Racist, it's all the fault of black people. And here's the other thing. That, that's segregationist racist, he calls them. The other form of racism that he identifies is what he calls assimilationist racism. What is that third category? So first category is it's all discrimination, anti-racist. Second category is segregationist racist, it's all the fault of black people. The third category is assimilationist racist, which believes it's any mixture of the two. So in, if you believe which that makes, Which any, makes me, definitionally, I am now a racist. You are racist. You are assimilation. And he actually says that he himself used to be an assimilationist racist. He would list Martin Luther King, uh, W.E. Du Bois. He would list all of these historic, you know, you know heroes of the civil rights movement mm -hmm. as, in his categorization, assimilationist racist. They, because they all believed it was partly not discrimination. That's enough to get you labeled an assimilationist racist in his book. 
Um, and he, and so he would even put himself in that category. He's kind of moved on to being striving for pure anti-racist thinking. And then, okay, so then, so how does now, that- Now, would you, would you describe that thinking, the, the thinking he represents as being woke? Is that a good description of being woke? No, no, it's it's part of it, but it's we'll get into what wokeness is in a, a little bit more more carefully, because um, there's a lot more than what he's saying. Uh, you, well, he's he is woke, but that's that doesn't really come out there necessarily. The yeah. other thing he says now about the California uh, amendment that's going to remove the protection against discrimination based on race, sex, and other other factors. Here's what Kendi says now. Remember, he's he's assumed that all racial disparities are only caused by discrimination. Now, here's what he says in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, page 18. He says, the defining question is whether discrimination is creating equity, by which he means equal outcomes, I can get into that, or inequity, by which he means unequal outcomes. That's the question about discrimination. Mm -hmm. Listen to this sentence, this is really important. If discrimination is creating equity, then it is anti-racist. Yeah, oh, I get it. I get it. In other words, now, discrimination, only, what we, what I would normally think that's unjust, that's racism. Yeah. He sees that as a solution. If it's if it's creating equity, mm -hmm. then it's anti-racist. He says, quote, the only remedy to racist to racist discrimination, which creates inequity, is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. Let me say that one more time. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. So he would totally just own, yes, I am going to discriminate based on race, but it's going to be anti-racist discrimination. Well, how does he define that? It's going to create equity, mm -hmm. by which he means equal outcomes. So I could say um, we need we need the percentage of black CEOs, based on this this theory, we need the percentage of black CEOs in the United States to equal the percentage of black people in the United States. Yes. So if it's 28% or 50, I don't know what the percentage it's 13%, is. 13%. Yeah. Say it's 13%, then we need 13% of our CEOs to be black. And we can like fine companies if they're not doing that. We could yeah. we could actually force them to fire diff and hire different people in order mm -hmm. to create that outcome. Um, so someone, you know, I would say, oh, so you're getting fired because you're white and you're getting hired because you're black. And I would look at that and say, that looks a lot like discrimination to me. Right. <laughs> this is, and he would admit it. This is discrimination, but yes. it's just, it's just, it's good because all that matters is same outcomes. Yeah, he will hear that's what equity means to him. Equity yeah. means equal outcomes. Um, and yeah. there's a lot more. So that's a taste of, you now for, I think for Kendi and there's other, other issues we can get into with Kendi. Um, so, so he defines a racist policy as one that either creates or perpetuates racial inequity. That is a, ra a racist policy does that. But when you think about that, and then and, and an anti-racist policy is one that tries to eliminate or re reduce inequity, racial inequities. Okay, the problem with that definition then, and it's a it's literally a Manichaean definition. It's every he says every policy. I should quote this for you. Every policy is either racist or anti-racist. Period. That's it. There's no in between. Let me just quote for you. He says. There is no neutrality in the racism struggle. The opposite of racist is not not racist. It is anti-racist. One endorses either the idea of a racial hierarchy as a racist or racial equality as an anti-racist. One either believes problems are rooted in groups of people as a racist or locates the problems, roots of problems in power and policies as an anti-racist. 
There is no in-between safe space of not racist. The claim of not racist neutrality is a mask for racism. The language of colorblindness, like the language of not racist, is a mask to hide racism. Pages 9 and 10 of How to Be an Anti-Racist. So he's very clear. I'll give Candy and D'Angelo and some other writers credit for being extremely clear. They they say exactly what they mean. Mm -hmm. And so he's very clear that every policy, every every policy, every action is either racist or anti-racist with no in-between. Yeah. So this is, in other words, as soon as you quote a statistic that mentions disparity or difference, right, where where it's like uh, we have um, what's considered a discriminated group is underrepresented in this statistic here, that's assumed to be racism and the solution is to pass discrimination laws yes. that force you to discriminate against what are considered the oppressor groups, <laughs> the, yeah. the, you know, the majority groups, in order to fix this. Um, and that's the kind of like um, reckless sort of stuff that's going on but it, ultimately that is that is injustice biblically speaking this is this is injustice like we shouldn't do this we shouldn't do this biblically this isn't fair treatment and scripture i think makes this clear when it says things like do not favor the rich and mm-hmm. do not favor the poor in judgment both of those things god hates like this is in the old testament right where it's just like don't don't make a judgment for the wealthy or for those who are privileged or whatever you want to call it don't make a judgment mm-hmm. for for them because they're privileged don't make a judgment for the poor because they're poor. Yeah. Real justice is fair uh, treatment under law given equally to all people. It's not equal outcomes. Yes. It, that would be the biblical view of these things. So now is a good time to talk about critical race theory. All right. Because <laughs> you guys listen up because what we're about to get into is super important because listen, this stuff has gotten into our, uh, and I'm not a conspiratory person at all. Okay. This isn't about a conspiratory. This is, this is about a, um, a, a worldview and understanding of a, a, a sort of a framing of the issue of race and discrimination that has been in our universities for a long time and has just hit like a tipping point. Like if you've ever, mm-hmm. you guys ever seen like the icebergs tip over, it's like the iceberg sitting there. It might slowly be moving. And one day it just goes whoosh and tips over. I think those videos are amazing. Like icebergs flipping over. Well, we're watching the iceberg finally flip on the issue of racism in our culture. And the worldview of critical race theory is becoming a dominant view. And if I'm going to think clearly, I have to reject critical race theory. But I've got to understand it to be able to reject it right and not just deny that racism is a problem right. or or become a, a clumsy advocate for biblical justice. So um, what is critical theory? Help us understand these things. Yeah, so let's talk a step back. So critical theory is this broad area of knowledge that has been around for, you know, probably a hundred years. So it really has its origin in Karl Marx. Um, he didn't coin the term, but he is considered by most scholars to be the, you know, first true critical theorist. That's the words of Bradley Levinson in his book Beyond Critique. The the term critical theory was coined by the Frankfurt School in the 30s in Germany. And people like Max Horkheimer, Theodore Adorno, these people, uh, they wanted to, they took Marx's ideas about, not about economics per se, but they took his ideas about how power operates to produce uh, oppression and inequalities and hierarchies. And then they wanted to emancipate people from uh, from these abuses of power. Uh, and and the, But they wanted to apply Marx's analysis of power more broadly than just economics to areas like culture. And mass media, and that, but that was again 80 years ago. And though since then, critical theory has spawned entire disciplines like queer theory, 
uh, critical pedagogy, critical race theory, critical legal studies, and all these other critical theories. these are theories. all like things you could, you could major in this in college, and people are, right? Yeah, well, they're very interdisciplinary. So you'd probably major in like sociology or gender studies, but the framework they're going to be using would be like, so you'd go and major in gender studies, but they're going to be adopting, say, a queer theory framework for understanding, mm -hmm. or a gender, gender theory is, is one of critical th social theories. And so there are a lot of similarities because all of these social theories treat uh, issues of power and dominance and oppression and liberation and uh, what's called hegemonic power, which means the ability to control the ideology of the culture. So what we think of as objective and normal and natural and neutral is actually the ideology of the ruling class. Now, whether that ruling class are men, so the system would be the patriarchy, or whether it's whites and the system would be white supremacy, or it's heterosexuals and the system would be heteronormativity. So, but all these different social theories, critical social theories, would theorize about different axes of identity, but in very similar ways. In all these cases, you're looking at how some system of thinking and discourse and, and talking and some ideology is being imposed by the ruling class on culture in a way that's taken as normal and objective. And then that leads, that justifies the power of that dominant group. Okay, so that's, those are critical social theories broadly. Um, and critical race so they, theory- So they all yeah. have to do with like finding dominant groups. And then is it, is it always associated with, you know, assigning some kind of injustice to that group and then sort of looking to right the wrongs? Yeah, um, so, so they would define oppression in terms of this dominance the very fact that your group is considered normal and uh and 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 that your values are considered the normal valuable neutral values that makes you an oppressor group a dominant group, social group mm -hmm. and the very fact that certain groups are considered to be other or exotic or different from the norm that makes them subordinate oppressed societal groups so that is a and then then social justice would involve um, the dismantling these systems and dismantling this hierarchy, dismantling these oppressive values so that power can be shared between all groups, right? So uh, all of the, um, and they do that in various ways. So a critical race theory would do that differently than say queer theory. But the mm -hmm. goal is to achieve the state where power is shared, where there is no group that oppressively defines the norms and values for all of culture. Um, so, hey, so that's critical. That's a really, that's a, it's a really broad area. So yeah, it's really broad. If we're going to break it down, simplified. if you guys got lost on that, yeah. it's going to come become more clear. Just kind of hang yeah. in there. Um, we're going to give you like, maybe you could give um, a, an example of what all this stuff has in common. Like what's the common thread you see through all critical theory stuff um, that would help us to maybe, if we've never heard of it before to understand, okay, that's what I'm seeing. So in, in one, so critical social theories, if I had to just in one sentence encapsulate all these different theories, they're all concerned with power. They're all concerned with uh, understanding how society is structured in terms of dominant and oppressed groups. And then they're all, they're all concerned with overturning and liberating oppressed groups, mm -hmm. right? They all, they all want to transform culture, not just observe it as a huge difference that the Frankfurt School uh, brought into their definition of critical theory. They said traditional theory aims to describe culture and following Marx, critical theory wants to not just describe it, but transform it to be more equitable, to achieve mm -hmm. it, to emancipate people who are uh, currently oppressed. Um, so, okay, but 
let's talk about of all of these different critical social theories, let's focus on critical race theory. So um, that grew out of what's called critical legal studies and critical legal theorists uh, questioned whether or not the law was neutral and objective and universal. They were, they were cynical. They said, no, what law really is, is law is the way for the ruling class to impose on culture laws and policies that benefit the self-interest of the ruling class, whether it's the rich or whatever, or whites or men, right? So they wanted to see how law functions to justify dominant groups, okay? Critical race, so that was critical, critical legal studies. In the 80s, people like Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, Neil Gotanda, uh, Richard Delgado, uh, Mary Matsuda, these are legal scholars, and they became dissatisfied with the way that race was being, they felt, ignored. They wanted to focus on how laws uh, impacted race in particular from within this critical legal framework. So their idea was, we want to understand how law has been used to justify white dominance and white self-interest over the course of U.S. history and today. So, out of so that's the 80s, uh, and so these scholars um, develop critical race theory. Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term intersectionality. We can talk about that later in 1989, I believe, or 91. Um, in 96, critical race theory was um, sort of uh, made its way into the educational discipline. So um, Ladson, Billings, and Tate published a famous paper that introduced critical race theory to education. And now, actually, uh, I would argue, following Gottesman, that education in general uh, is deeply shaped by this critical, critical theories, broadly, and critical race theory in particular. Mm -hmm. So that's just the way that scholars are thinking about how culture functions so if, so if i summarized it this way and said okay so critical race theory is a worldview or a way of looking at culture law society um through the lens you you start to see it through the lens of oppressor and oppressed and so, so there's a problem that needs a solution between dominant and not dominant groups and then that flavors everything else that you do is that like a Okay. Yeah, so that? I like to so I, I I like to refer to the whatever you want to call the worldview. People have there's no what no name for it. People call it cultural Marxism. People call it identity politics. People call it intersectionality. Um, that there's no label for that worldview that that totalizing ideology. So call it what you want. I, I think critical social justice is maybe one helpful term. Um, uh, I call it contemporary critical theory, but this is my term. But there's that worldview, and then critical race theory. I like to refer to it as a discipline. Uh, it's a, it's a, you know, you can identify the core tenets, but once you recognize that there is that worldview out there, you'll see how critical race theory really fits very nicely into that way of looking at the world. So I wouldn't call it a worldview per se, but I would say it fits into this worldview. Yeah, it, it impacts your worldview. It's yeah, yeah. A, it's and a piece of a worldview. Yeah. It's a natural way to think about race if you already embrace that worldview. So let me just, I'll quote. I won't quote because it's long, but. I'll give you sort of the four central tenets of critical race theory, and you can find these in lots of papers. They will say, here are the central tenets of critical race theory. You can right. find it, in the, I'm gonna quote- Let's get these, and then, and then we'll talk about whether it's compatible with Christianity yes, or yeah. not, which is the main concern. So what are the central tenets of critical race? So theory? here are the four of central tenets of critical race theory. One, racism is permanent, pervasive, and normal, 
racial oppression has not disappeared. It has just evolved. That's number one. Number two, racism, sexism, classism, heterosexism are all inextricably linked forms of oppression that must be fought simultaneously. Three, claims of objectivity and neutrality and universality and meritocracy and colorblindness. All these scare quotes. See the scare quotes? Mm -hmm. Those claims are mechanisms to disguise racism and oppression. And four, the experiential knowledge, the lived experience of people of color is critical to understanding racism. So racism is permanent, number one. Racism is part of many interlocking systems of oppression, sexism, classism, heterosexism. Claims of objectivity and colorblindness disguise racism. It's hidden beneath those claims. And four, the lived experience of people of color is critical to understanding racism. So those force, and I can quote many people saying these same things as mm -hmm. these central tenets. So um, yeah. that's the core, yeah. Okay, so... Um... What does it mean then? Like what, what is the central tenets? Like how does this play out then in culture? If you could give us an example before we talk about maybe the problems with it. Because I feel like we we're talking about the theory and the X, but like when the rubber hits the road, what does that mean for people when this critical race theory becomes the way we view our society and the way that we view each other and politics and all that? Yeah, so there, I mean, let me just give you some practical illustrations or examples of how this would play out in like a day-to-day -day life. So forget policy for a second. I'm not really big into policy. Like I said, as long as you don't say it's all racism or it's zero racism, you can, we can argue about it. I'm not an economist. Mm -hmm. uh, but I want to show you more practically, um, not policy impact, but personal impact. Yeah. So for example, let's say you accept tenant number one. Racism is permanent pervasive and normal now this is a new this claim is very common they critical race theorists will say racism has not qualitatively changed since jim crow and maybe even the days of slavery that it simply changes form it's mutated so that's they will say that right it's it's like and and then it's pervasive it's everywhere it's all around you the, the analogy they use it's like a, it's like smog you breathe it in. You're, you don't even know you're breathing in. You can't shut the door to smog. It's in the air. So number one, let's say that you believe that, right? That means that you you read racism into every interaction. So Robin D'Angelo actually says the question is not, did racism happen? The question is, how did racism manifest in this context? So this is why you will see people finding racism everywhere. They're not paranoid exactly. They're they're working out this principle, this presupposition in their lives. They see it everywhere because they they the tenet of critical race theory is it is everywhere. They mm -hmm. have to and, and so then you say, but wait a minute, but why are they finding it? I didn't see that. Like, you see you see racism when you actually see people like yelling a racial slur, but how do they find it in these other you know places? I don't even see it. Well, it's because it's hidden. Remember, that's number three. These claims of objectivity, colorblindness, are really ways to disguise and conceal racism. So, for example, mm -hmm. when you see a disparity, and when I, I say, okay, disparities, um, it's not 0% racism, but it's not 100% racism. You know, there's some element of, say, merit, like the NBA. The reason that 70% black players are there is merit, right? Now, 
the issue is now Kendi wouldn't apply that to the NBA, but if he saw that disparities where there were, say, fewer blacks represented or fewer mm-hmm. Asians or fewer Hispanics, he would say, and I would say, well, maybe it's maybe, maybe, maybe that's just merit. Maybe, maybe, uh, you know, maybe, maybe Asians don't want to play basketball as much as whites and blacks do. That's why there are fewer Asians. And he would say, yeah, that claim about meritocracy, that is a disguise for racism. That's why they see it everywhere. Because again, and you'll say, wait a minute, but I have evidence that it's just merit, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's again, that's that's a disguise. Yeah. Appeals to empirical research are actually ways to justify the disparity mm-hmm. because so, number three says, yeah. One of my concerns here is that, like you said, how it affects us personally, right? Yeah. So let's say that I'm a person who's, who's of an oppressed group in these categories and I live my life and whenever something bad happens to me, I'm maltreated. Uh, I don't get a job or something like that. It's a foregone conclusion that that was racism against me. Yeah. And so and, well, yeah. if I view it that way, then in my life, I'm stockpiling a list of stories that whether they were or weren't racism, I believe they were. I believe yeah. they were. And so my my division from especially other brothers and sisters in Christ is way up here. I, I, I go and I see them and I don't I don't see the church. I see the white church. Mm-hmm. Right. I, or I see the black church or I see mm-hmm. the. And I, I, even those terminologies, well, the black church needs it. And I'm just like, I see the terminology there just seems problematic to me. Yeah. Um, and so it creates a lot of division, a lot of division. And uh, I, I live in a, the community I live in, in Southern California is, is I'm a, I'm the minority in this community. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the experienced tension over the past few years has gone up. <laughs> like, as I'm just yeah. walking around and it's just, things are getting more and more tense between me and like my neighbors for no reason. Yeah. And, um. And it, it's 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 a lot of division and human. It just feels like a lot of bitterness and and stuff like that. That's, that's that feels like it's justified, and it could be based on perceived racism, right? Because of this principle. Well, but here's the problem, Mike. What you just said. So your your suggestion that well, you know, maybe people are perceiving things that aren't there because they've bought into this ideology that tells them it's there mm-hmm. no matter what. It's pervasive. It's permanent. It's normal. It's everywhere. Uh, Maybe that is actually causing them to see racism where it doesn't exist. Well, now that statement, that claim would be deemed incredibly problematic because number four, the experiential knowledge of people of color is critical to understanding racism. So they would argue that because you are white, you are blinded by your white privilege, right? And sure, you want to find an excuse to hide from the reality, the ugly reality that our society is racist and white supremacist. So you are claiming you're invalidating the lived experience of people of color to justify your blindness to racial pain. Yeah. That's the, and, that's and the, the problem narrative. is the extremes. Like you said, it's the extremes. Right. It's like I have to either agree with every claim of racism or reject every claim of racism. Like, no, reality doesn't work like that. But, <laughs> so see, but, why should I? So, yeah. what you would, so what you would say is what a biblical response would be, right, mm-hmm. that we have to actually examine each case based on evidence based on, again, that principle of charity. You can't assume someone is, well, there's a question of what racism is. We'll have to go back to that. Yeah. But you can't assume that something that happened to you is motivated by animus, to put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are issues there. But the point is, they yeah. would say, but if a person of color fee, you know, lives that out, knows, it's, you know, knows that it is racism, right? Then you can't, you shouldn't challenge that you should, because again, that would be an expression of your white fragility. Mm-hmm. Like Robin D'Angelo's term is that by saying, "Are you sure this is racism?" 
then you're actually imp- you're trying to dominate them. Mm-hmm. You need to defer to their lived experience. Yeah, I'm and, gonna I'm gonna say something yeah. really controversial here, um, yeah. but that's probably this whole video. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so when I when I heard about hear about like say uh, a cop shooting a black man, right? And I hear about it and I go, okay, all I know mm-hmm. is a cop shot a black man, and I know I see some people going, boom, racism. Yeah, and I and I'm just thinking. You don't know that. Like, we don't know anything yet. I'm not saying it's not racism. I'm not saying it's racism. Like, you can't know that right now. You don't know anything about the scenario. And yet riots will ensue. Right. And people will pick sides. And I'm just going, we don't even have the data yet. Can we get the can we get the camera footage, the body camera footage? Can we look at the situation and see? And um, but from this principle you're saying, um, that principle would lead to the knee-jerk reaction and a seemingly justified knee-jerk reaction against anything that relates to a disparity right or what they call discrimination what's, yeah. what's more yeah and this is the key i think people there's, there's a lot of a disconnect here because conservatives will say well how can you know it's racism we literally have no idea what the details were we, we just have we know nothing but because a white cop shot a black guy it's all we know you say it's racism how can you know it was motivated by racism and and they say well you're being irrational no no they are following their definitions, their conclusions. So they will say it's not, we're not saying it's racial animus because racism has been defined to be basically systemic. It's a system of racial hierarchy and racial privilege such that, like you said, disparities point to racism even when it's not animus. So like like in this is Kennedy's example, Kennedy doesn't think that disparities are caused by rational conscious animus all the time he doesn't think that he would say there's a system in place that produces these outcomes and that system is racist and produces racism even if all of the actors are not consciously being racist so when a white cop shoots a black man it is racism because disproportionately know that blacks are shot at disproportionate rates to whites and that by kennedy's assumption must be due to discrimination by by assumption which inevitably leads yeah it just it just leads to injustice towards cops now right because we're gonna we're gonna just assume their their the guilt that they have and i mean of course there's racist cops there absolutely is and is there a problem with cops uh in many cases being um uh mean violent abusing their authority absolutely I i think that guys who are like that are drawn to positions of power like being a cop but i also know there's great cops <laughs> so you have to take them individually so what we're doing is we're, we're we're using what i see it as you know you can correct this if you think it's wrong but i see it as creating injustice as a way of fighting injustice by redefining these terms and biblically we should say hold on you know he who answers a matter before he hears it it's a folly and shame to him right and to say it's racism without having looked into the scenario just seems obviously wrong but uh, but but then again, the people who hear me say that are thinking, who are bought into critical race theory, are thinking, Mike, you're just ignorant. You're just terribly, yeah. terribly ignorant here. Well, and you have you have what they would say is a white understanding of racism. You're defining it as animus, whereas they define it again to mean this whole system, this you know this very broad system of racial privilege, by definition, which includes which basically causes all disparities, and 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 then here's Mike. Here's a this is this is why it's so poisonous. You can't answer that. You, you can't say, but guys, the Bible says we shouldn't be judging these cases before hearing the evidence and stuff. 
And they, but they, but not only they said that well, the racism is systemic, meaning is not that it's that everybody is is racially uh, hate has racial hatred. There, when they say systemic, they means it's a system that produces disparities. I can give you quotes. <laughs> systemic to them means a system that produces disparities, uh, racial disparities. Yeah, makes it simply racist, even when there's no animus involved. There's a book by Bonilla Silva whose title is "Racism Without Racists." And his argument is that racism is a system that can operate independent of the motives of the person who's in the system. So he would see, again, disparities as produced by this racist system in the absence of it. And that's why they can point to any disparity in, say, police shootings and say that's racist. Um, And if you challenge that, if you say, wait a minute, that's a bad way to define racism, again... That fourth tenet, that lived experience, is really central to understanding racism. They they can say, you know, you're not being empathetic. You're not, you know, you're not, you're invalidating people's lived experience. You're being heartless and cruel. And we have to just, we have to say, you know, brother, I I realize there's real, there's racism, there's animus, there's hatred, there is unconscious bias. There is, there are people that, that unknowingly, hurt you and marginalize you or knowingly both of them right but but brother we cannot let go of this biblical principle of not rushing to judgment of being charitable uh in terms of and then what i've begun to start pushing on again it's very hard because i think what i focus on is the underlying ideology which i'm saying that's wrong at the outset you you cannot start lifting up lived experience over things like objective evidence reason Mm. logic even scripture like if, if you That's see it, deadly. if somebody uh, mistreats, say a white person mistreats a black person, you find out later the white person's blind. Mm. <laughs> and then yeah, you're, you're right. like, still racism, still <laughs> yeah, racism, right? Yeah. Like, hold on, guys. Like, you, you've got to realize we're creating a system that propagates injustice. And, right. and, that's, and based yeah. on the quotes you read earlier, it does so on purpose. And right. just says, yeah, but that's not really injustice because we've defined justice in a new way. Mm-hmm. that it, so everything it's all definitional that's why it gets complicated because it's like we're changing definitions which maybe we could talk briefly about the definition of the word racism because i'll tell you a conversation i had and maybe you could explain this <laughs> a conversation i had a friend with with a friend who says mike you're not understanding how how people are defining race this was a, sure. a, a black friend of mine we're talking about this issue and i was like well what do you mean and he says it's based upon oppressors and oppressees and you're white you're part of an oppressor group and a yeah. black person's part of the op- the oppressed and so only the oppressed can be there on the receiving end of racism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I said, wait a minute, are you telling me that if hypothetically, and this has not happened to me, but hypothetically, a black person runs up to me and they say, Mike, I hate you only because you're white. And then they take yeah. a fork and just stab me in the face with it five times and then run away yelling, I stabbed the white devil. <laughs> and then they yeah. run away laughing. So based on your definition, that's not racism. Uh, or it's not his definition, but it's the ones he's talking about. And he says, yeah, that's not racism. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's racism. <laughs> this is, you know, like, we're just going to take certain classes of people and remove any sort of concern for their protections. And this is, of course, not being partial on either side is the biblical yeah, view. And, and accountability. So that, that's right. So the definition, let's go back to that definition. It's very common within a CRT and anti-racist literature is prejudice plus power. So racism, they define as prejudice plus power. And so they will say, yeah, well, people of color can be just as prejudiced and are just as prejudiced as whites. They will totally acknowledge that. Um, but they can't be racist. By definition, 
because they lack institutional power. It's not just individual power. It's that your your group lacks the power to impose your racism or your prejudice on law, on structures, on, on, on systems. So that means that you can't be, a person of color can't be racist. They can be prejudiced, but not racist. And so you're like, well, isn't that just semantics? And I say, well, but be careful because language shapes our thinking, mm-hmm. right? So for example, if I said, I'm going to redefine adultery to mean marital unfaithfulness plus power. So yeah. a man can commit adultery, yes. But a, when a woman is maritally unfaithful, she's just cheating. Mm-hmm. So wait, 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 wait. Those yeah. words have different connotations. And what's more, biblically, mm-hmm. sin is primarily against God. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, to me, the biblical answer is uh, God hates unjust scales. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? He doesn't want... it. It's not outcomes that Scripture's actually primarily concerned about as far as the results that play out in a person's life of how much money they have and all that kind of thing. It's about just scales, same treatment under law. That's that's the thing that I think the biblical justice is concerned about. Right. And I, and I think that when you, and actually I had a really good conversation uh, a few days ago with a church in, in England. And one of the, one of the people, the panelists there, I think was a, I, I think it was a pastor, but he was saying, yeah, you know, when you redefine language, so that you take what is a sin, like racism. Racism is, is a sin. Prejudice, interesting. You can be like, you know, my wife's beautiful, but I'm prejudiced. You're not using the word that way in a mean way. Just, just, it's like a joke. So, But racism is not like you can't joke about, oh, my wife's beautiful, but I'm racist. <laughs> no. Racism yeah. is a deeply yeah. evil sin. That's right, yeah. When you then mm-hmm. change the language so that one group is exempted from this category of sin, even if you're like, well, they're still prejudiced. Yeah, yeah. But, but the impact is different. And, and frankly, I do think that when, as sinners, we look for all the loopholes we can find yeah. to hate. We, we love to find excuses for our sin. And so when you begin to say, well, you know, a common phrase is reverse racism is a myth because only whites can be racist by definition. When you say that over and over and over again, yeah. people begin to be more comfortable with being more and more prejudiced in their, in their mind towards mm-hmm. whites because they're not being racist. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's all language games, but it's still serious because I do see, if you read these books sometimes, I've occasionally taken the books and just swapped out the word black with white. And the things that they're saying about white whites, if you made it about blacks, just mm-hmm. sound horrifically racist. Yeah, what if the name of the book was Black Fragility? Oh, yeah. And and, and, it would, and, yeah. and my thought is that, yeah, we, we should reject all of those statements across the board. And this is going to be the hard thing for us to be biblically minded on because they're, they're recouching the terminology so that you are racist. If you actually have a biblical view of justice at this point, Yeah. Um, if you absorb critical race theory. So maybe I could ask this, why do you, why is critical race theory attractive? Like what is it that draws people towards it? Cause some people they get, I think they get uh, pulled in and and emotionally committed to it. Sure. Um, What is the thing that draws people to it? I think there uh, are people that, first of all, they they didn't learn enough about America's actual history uh, and the, the horrible racial history that we have as a country. They didn't mm-hmm. learn about that, yeah. you know, f- in the history books. Yeah. Or, or in in anywhere else. And so then, the first time they learned these actual truths, not the all the ideology, but just the truths of what actually slavery was like, what actually Jim Crow was like, what actual laws were on the books. The first time they learned that was from 
critical race theorists or anti-racist activists. Mm-hmm. So they're, 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 they're just, their minds are blown. They're like, oh my gosh, I had no idea it was this bad. They look on this source as this, like, this crystal ball. They're like, oh my gosh, I, I, I was lied to. So then they treat this new source as like a source of authority. They, what they know what they're talking about. Yeah. I never got this before. So then they accept uncritically all the yeah. other ideas that are being sold along with the actual truths. Yeah. Um, that's one thing. So I think, I think again, Christians should do a better job of actually being honest about our history without bringing in these other ideas that are wrong. Yeah. Uh, and because that, that way that'll, that'll remove some of the mystification that's, that occurs when people yeah. are exposed for the first time based on critical race theory. The there's other an, thing, there's an element of this too, as a Christian, where you say, look, my identity is not like I'm an American. Like, I mean, my identity, yeah, I'm an American and I recognize that I, I should be submitting to the government where God has me and all that. But, but my identity is in Christ yeah. and I see the fallenness of mankind. And I don't have this like rose colored view of my own nation's history. Yeah. I, I, I should look at it and go, I, yeah, again, I just think, boy, I sure hope I would have had the guts and the clarity in, of mind to stand up and say the truth, you know, in 1820. And I sure hope I have the guts to do it in 2020. Mm. And and to me, it's on both sides. Like I have to say, racism is a present issue. It's present even in many who say I'm a follower of Christ. And as much as you're a racist, you are not a Christian. Like that much that part of you, I mean, I'm using hyperbole here, but that part of you that is embracing race, racism is is antithetical to your commitments to Christ or to the knowledge of, of the, the nature of man or the work of Christ. Mm-hmm. But the solutions of critical race theory that are being promoted as like the fix, this is yeah. the way to see the problem and the way to fix the problem. Both of those things are very unbiblical as well. And so sure. we're kind of like, I don't know how I'm gonna make many friends right now <laughs> because one side, and to be straight, right, the Republican side tends to just you know, demote the problem. Like it's just a myth, a myth of racism or whatever. And then the the Democrat side or the liberal side of things is is seeing the solution as critical race theory. And I'm yeah. like, I you're both wrong and, and this is destructive to culture and destructive to the church. Yeah. And it's dividing um, the church, man. It's hurtful. I see it. Well, yeah. well that's one of the other so I talked about how, you know, if you embrace this view, you will begin to see racism everywhere because you're told it's everywhere. It's a, a basic tenet. The other thing that you're told to do is to see you know, whites, as your friend said, whites as oppressors, not because of them being personally oppressive, because it's a system, but they are oppressors by virtue of their skin color, their race. Yeah. And you are, other the other side of that, you are oppressed by virtue of your race, independent of yeah. any other factors, which, again, is, when you think about that for a second, and this is actually, has happened, but, you know, a very wealthy, individually powerful, successful, highly educated black people, Asian people, Hispanic people will view themselves as oppressed relative to a white, uh, with respect to race, relative to a poor, handicapped, you know, totally uneducated white, homeless white person mm-hmm. because of his race. Now, he might be oppressed with respect to his physical ability or his class or his education, but when it comes to race, he has white privilege mm-hmm. again is relative to what he would experience as a black person but the point is it's this one that's not a, a realistic way to see the world frankly you know a very rich educated powerful black person uh should not see themselves as oppressed they because wait, 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 well 
the definition of oppression has been changed again. It used to yeah. mean it's you about are, identities instead of actual your identity. Experiences. You're part of an oppressed group, but that shouldn't. Your actual experience day to day is not one of oppression, mm -hmm. right? You know, a, yeah. uh, whereas a person, a white person who is oh, for, for, for this, a white person uh, could could be in a wealthy family, could be educated, could be um, you know, could, could have all the could they could be cisgendered and heterosexual, and yet if they have parents who hate them, right, they they have a terrible family. That's not even a category within critical theories, like family, love between parents and child. Mm -hmm. And yet, we, as Christians, we're like, yeah. their experiences, I, you know, are so much worse than a poor yet so loving, you know, uneducated Hispanic family or black family, right? There's no comparison. Money cannot buy love. Money cannot buy mm -hmm. what matters, relationship. And for us to view everything in terms of group dynamics and power, it's just, it's not remotely biblical because it... Bible is not what, what your experiences are shaped f more by things like, again, the love you experience between your, with your father, your parents, the love of your siblings, love of your friends, things like being born again, right? If you have God's love, yeah. you know, you could be physically oppressed. Absolutely. Right. You could be actually be oppressed. You could be a, you could be a slave. You could be a sex slave. You could be terribly oppressed. But if you have God's love, that's going to be your primary identity factor. That's going to shape your experiences more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And and you could be this rich, powerful oppressor, uh, or sorry, you could be you could, oppressor. You could be, um, on the other side, you could have power and wealth and prestige and all these things. And if you are not born again, then you're under God's wrath. Mm -hmm. And that will shape primarily your experience. That yeah. you're, you're, you know, you're not regenerate. So the, the point is just that as Christians, there are so, and then, and what about the church? I cannot, I cannot walk into a church, and say there's an oppressor Christian, there's an oppressed Christian, there's an oppressed Christian, there's an oppressed Christian. That that mentality will destroy the church. So we got to bring back into the church, into the thinking of Christians, not the term racism, but the term partiality. Yeah, I think that this is really needed, right? Where we go, look, we're called to be impartial. And if we see that as the rule, then it immediately outlaws critical race theory from the heart and mind of a Christian. Because you can't, like you said, I can't walk into a Christian and look at, or into a church and say, look, white Christian oppressor, black Christian oppressed. Yeah. That's that's the definition of partiality. That's and just that, exactly remember, what that is. Remember, one of the central tenets of critical race theory is that racism disgu is disguised by things like impartiality, neutrality, mm -hmm. yeah, color so blindness. It, so they it anathematizes the biblical teaching yeah. of impartiality as a disguise for racism. Yeah. So then, so I don't know. I, I could go on and on about these basic incompatibilities mm -hmm. about how, what critical race theory does to your way of thinking, and they're they're just so poisonous. Um, and I, I just can't emphasize that enough. I I really I, I want to plead with people. I actually have a a guy that I know who is a black pastor in Texas. This was a few about a year ago, I guess. But he, he was, he was like, you know, he DM'd me uh, and he said, you know, I, I'm black. I, I know racism exists. I've experienced it. Right. But this critical race theory stuff, it's tearing my church apart. He's trying to pastor the church. He's got, we got, we got whites, we got blacks, we got BLM supporters and we've got cops. Right. He's like, there are four couples that were in his church that were thinking about separating 
in his words, over critical race theory, over whether they adopted these these categories or not. And it was tearing his church apart. And he's like, this week, I cannot, this is not, this is not good. <laughs> this is not the solution. This is ruining my church. Mm-hmm. So I just want to plead with people. Um, we can talk about, again, more why it's attractive. I think there's some other reasons, too. But, you know, brothers and sisters, th- this is not the way. This is poison. This will poison your thinking. And you got to get out. <laughs> like You, you, yeah. you don't... You, you know, listen, go back and listen to the first half an hour. Mike and I talked about racism and history. Well, I'll, talk, I'll talk in a second about colorblindness and why I think it's actually not the best model for thinking about race. But there, there are things that we can that, that I think we can appreciate. Their insights, critical race theory has that are true that we can get from the Bible, right? But I'm begging you not to take the bait. You know, you're nibbling at the cheese, and the the trap is going to snap on your neck, and so. Uh, let's let's think about what you think is what is true that you're getting from these authors. You can get from a non-poisoned source, which is scripture, which is yeah. reality. So, but I'm begging you, don't drink from this well. It's, and I'm going to echo that. I'm going to echo that. Look, I, I I want to be as biblical as possible in all these things, and I see that as the path through the fog. Okay. But critical race theory as a, a whole is utterly unacceptable to the biblical view of like there is neither Jew nor 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 Greek nor slave nor free. These it's it's the denial of those things, not the emphasis of all those things. But what what's talk about the cheese in your analogy of the, of the mousetrap? More of, about the cheese. What else? What are the the goods or the positives or the things you would you would actually affirm? in a critical race theory. Right. So, so I'm going to use, I'm glad you mentioned Galatians 3, 26, 28, uh, because that's a verse that I think is actually misunderstood, uh, by a lot of Christians to promote color blindness. Now it's, there's, there's, we be careful here. Is color blindness good or bad? The answer is both. So the way that critical race theorists define color blindness is as ignoring race, pretending not to notice it. Now, if you define it that way, is it good or bad? Well, it's just silly. It's like ridiculous. Like, oh, I can't even tell. What are you? Are you white? Are you are you Asian? I can't even. You can tell, and 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 frankly, like because because race correlates with culture, you know, you notice things like, I mean, actually, there's studies that show like the top ten black television shows and the top ten white television shows are like totally different. So it, culture core doesn't mean there's no black people that watch white shows and whatever. No, I'm just saying that you you notice these things as socially salient features. And yeah. from a biblical perspective, we say there's no neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Does that mean oh just stop talking about race? We should all just be one in the church, not talk about race at all. Well, here's the thing: that verse goes on to say there's neither male nor female. Mm-hmm. Do we become gender blind when we become Christian? Like, oh, I'm not a male or female anymore. I'm a Christian. No, no. Gender is a good thing. It's a God-ordained category, and we should exult in it. Now, race is different because race is, we said, a social construct, but ethnicity is a biblical category. And what's more, Paul, who says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free in, in, in Galatians, Paul exulted in his Jewish ethnicity. Yeah. And he I mean, talked, yeah. To, to reinforce that, he even called himself the apostle to the Gentiles. The Jew, yeah. Whereas Peter is to the Jews. 
I mean, in modern categories, we would think of that as having like an ethnic focus in your ministry. Oh, and they would be like, the church can't do that or something. And you're like, well, I mean, biblically, they had an Paul had an ethnic focus in his ministry. And so did Peter. It's more that Paul called Paul called the Jews his people. Paul said that when fellow people of the circumcision came to visit him, he was refreshed. He was like, oh, thank goodness there were Jews here. Yeah. Well, like, Paul, you can't say that. Well, yeah. that's yeah. the Bible, guys. So it's fine to feel an affinity for the people of your ethne. They, they, yes. it's, it's, so, the, the, so Paul's not saying there's neither – there's no more ethnicities in the church. He's not saying that because that would be saying there's no more gender. And and clearly we would yeah. not say, oh, you, I can't even see gender. Are you a guy? And go tell, go tell your female friends. Like I can't even tell that you're a female. That'll be – they'll be flattered, right? So, <laughs> I'd love that, yeah. Yeah, right. So, so wait, what, is it, what does it mean? What's Paul saying then, Neil? Right. Tell us. He's saying, he's saying our standing before God is no longer as Jew or Gentile or male or female. Mm-hmm. We stand equally adopted, justified, and you know, as Christians before God. And so that no longer defines our central primary identity. So the other verse to couple with Galatians 3, which is, okay, the, or you know, Paul's ethnicity matters to him. It's fine. It's, he exalts in it. It's fine to be a, to have Jewish ethnicity. Um, but look at Philippians 2. He says, all of that, all it was to my gain, including his ethnicity, I count as scubula, as dung, compared to the surpassing, surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Yeah. So what he's saying is it's fine to have, you know, to exult in your ethnicity, to exult in your whatever your, cat, your identity categories. They can be mm-hmm. real categories, right? But compared to Christ, to, compared to your Christian identity, they are rubbish. Mm-hmm. And rubbish. So, so rubbish. So, so I mean, that, and that's a, in the Greek word. That's not just rubbish. That's you know dung. It's you know it's it's a strong word. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Garbage would be a, be a better uh, a polite translation. So, um, so when, whenever people so people exulting in being black or white or some other ethnic category. Again, whites, these are different because they're racist. But the point is, ethnicity is not an evil thing, right? Yeah. Actually, Vody Bauckham, who no one will consider to be a critical race theorist, he points out that being colorblind is kind of problematic. He's like, he's like, my my skin is black and it's beautiful. Like, it's it's great. You know, I love being black. And it's... Yeah. Wait, Vody Bauckham's sh- black? I didn't even yeah, notice. Right, yeah, right, yeah. I didn't notice at all. <laughs> so and he, so he, he kind of actually in his, t- his, 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 his talk, I think it's in his talk, Ethnic Gnosticism, where he criticizes uh-huh. brutally this, this ethnic Gnosticism. But he yeah. says, but when you think when you think that the solution is just to be blind to your color of your skin and blind to these differences, that's just silly. Mm-hmm. You can celebrate those things. But the second it becomes more important than your Christian identity, the second you feel distance between you and some other person merely because of their ethnic group, because of their race, um, that is when you need to start saying, this is becoming an idol. Yeah. And I have to kill that idol. Yeah, this is where Paul the Apostle and Peter butted heads, right, in Galatians 2. So Peter is visiting Paul, and uh, there he has some more visitors that are Jewish. And when the Jewish visitors come because of their conscience about eating food and Gentiles and all this, he goes and eats with them separately. And then Paul flips out because... He, he sees the eating separately as an illustration that they that they're, according to Paul, what Peter's doing is, quote, not true according to the gospel. He's not walking in line with the gospel yet. Yeah. So this ethnic separation that was created by the law was taken down by Christ. Mm-hmm. He's broke down that middle wall of separation and brought us together. 
and I love theology stuff. And, uh, <laughs> and, and Paul's like, look, this, and, and this is how we have to respond with critical race theory and say the categories you guys are creating and the importance you create for ethnicity, while it yeah. matters, the degree of importance is, is not true according to the gospel. Yeah. And the division that it's causing, we ought to respond the way Paul did to Peter and say, oh, no, 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 no. We have to stop this. We can't, we can't let it have a foothold in our congregations. Um, I, I recognize there's a, there, yeah. So identity, ethnicity can be seen as part of who you are, but unrelated to the unity you have in Christ and the fellowship you have in Christ with other people. Right. But this, so this, this makes yeah. it impossible to do that because you just, you just see oppressed, oppressy, oppressed, oppressy yeah. in the church. And so what I would say is, again, for people that are attracted to this idea that colorblindness is not perfect, that's true. You can say, yeah, actually, there's a biblical way to think about these categories, these identities. But the way that critical race theory thinks about it is wrong. They get the part about it not being erased right. But then they, instead of, instead of erasing it, they just exalt it to this incredibly idolatrous position where it would usurp even your identity in Christ, yeah. uh, which they would, there's not even category for them in, in that way. Um, yeah. The other thing that's uh, another, again, an element of truth, which I think, again, it's it's found in the Bible, guys. You don't need to go to critical race theory to find it. But the idea that there can be, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, unhealthy and even sinful patterns of cultural dominance. So a simple example um, would be how the, uh, this is often actually often invoked, but in Acts 6, the, uh, the, hip, the uh, hell, no, the, Hel the Hellenistic, Hellenistic widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food, right? Mm -hmm. And so they were, you know, they were, they were, the apostles were giving out food to the widows, and the, the uh, Hellenistic Jews, they, they complained at least that their widows were being overlooked. And now, do we think, I mean, think about it. It could be, it's not in the Bible, but do we think that these are the apostles giving out the food? Do we think the apostles were like, I don't like those Hellenistic widows, we're not going to give them food? No, it was probably just unconscious, right? They they were Hebraic Jews. They were from Jerusalem, so or they were from Israel. So they could have been just negligence. They could have just not noticed it, right? Um, so, but they but they realized, oh my gosh, when they saw that that was an, an injustice, they wanted to correct it. They weren't. Again, we don't think they were sinning. They just realized, oh my gosh, we shouldn't neglect these people. We want to. So they appointed deacons who were Hellenistic Jews. Hellenists, yeah. So, all the deacons, yeah. they're they're right. people from. And this is something, of course, <laughs> that I think this balances us because we go, wait, yeah. this is exactly where like sort of the more conservative side of people would be like, wait a minute. I don't like that example. Yeah, but this right, is scripture right. here, right? They, yeah, right? they hire seven deacons. Every one of them to a, to a man is from the Hellenistic group, the ones that were right. being overlooked. So that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no. The funny thing is that's interpreted as, see, the reversing power dynamics. Is that what's going on? Well, no, because all the church elders the the apostles are still jewish <laughs> they're told the hebraic jews so so they didn't reverse power dynamics but they, they, they saw a need that was better met by the group that was suffering from the need so it was i don't think this they're they're viewing that that story through this critical race theory lens but i think it's just not <laughs> what's being mm -hmm. taught but the point is but the apostles did see a need in this one community and then pick people from that community to address the need so What's that sort of analogy today where we see in, not through malice, but things that are just being overlooked that I think um, are, are and, it, and, it, and it can be not entirely innocent either. Um, but an example would be that uh, comes up a lot, I think, in multi-ethnic churches is the music you play, right? Oh, well, what kind of music do you play at your church service? Uh, well, we just play normal music. 
normal music. What kind of music is that? You know, Chris Tomlin, Matt Redman, Matt Pop. You mean white music? No, 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 normal music. See, but see that, that see that assumption there. So, no, that what critical race theory calls that is interesting. It's called is white supremacy, because they've redefined that term. Mm-hmm. White supremacy means that whiteness is the white culture is normal. That's all it means. But, but the term has been the term used to mean, you know, basically white people are better than black people and non-white people. But but now it means whiteness is the norm. Well, frankly, white supremacy by that definition is just like well, just majority culture, right? So and that's a really terrible term to use. Yeah. But the phenomenon that whites often assume that their culture is sort of neutral, that's a real phenomenon. So when you're in a majority white church, say, it should be on the table to say, are you really trying to you know, meet all of your congregation's desires and preferences with the, your music choice? Yeah. Think you can about say that. that. You can say that and you're, you're not adopting critical race theory. Not remotely. <laughs> and this is the thing. It's the all or nothing that, right, that yeah, concerns yeah. me. It's it's why should we be doing this all or nothing thing? Like we, we need to not, we need to have our own worldview and then analyze the issues and approach it from that worldview. Well, and again, we're, we're in the Bible is that kind of idea, that kind of thinking. What about Romans? What about uh, Corinthians 16, where they're talking, First Corinthians 16, we're talking about how each brother should submit to the good of the other, right, out of love, right? How can you lay down your rights for the good of the body? That's the principle. It's not about power dynamics. It's about all, all people, yeah. whether white, black, Hispanic, Asian, purple, green, whatever. All Christians should be looking for ways in which they can say lay down their preferences for the good of the body. Yeah, we don't amen, need amen to, to import CRT. It's not even remotely a CRT issue. Yeah. And we, and we can't it, yeah. we can't respond to needs around us and say, gosh, if I if I tr- try to seek this need. To, to minister to this need that I think is represented in ethnic differences, then I'm adopting critical race theory sure, and I'm yeah. becoming, you know, liberal and all this stuff. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, no, that's, you know, we, we've got to be so firm in our worldview that we can tackle issues and work through Christ, with Christian love and charity and, and biblical views so that we can tackle these problems and not be picking sides. Right. Um, but saying, no, no, we've got our own side and it's represented sure. through the body of Christ. And that's the side I pick. So I think that, again, that's the cheese in the trap is where people will mm-hmm. see, they say, hey, colorblindness is not ideal. Here's an, and, and I see Christians embracing colorblindness wholeheartedly with no qualifications. So he, but critical race theory sees the problems in it. So I'm going to embrace critical race. I'm like, no, stop, stop. Look, yeah. there's a better way. Mm-hmm. I, or I, I see that my church, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a person of color in a, in a majority white church. All the music is like stuff that I don't like. All the all the the culture culture is the different culture than mine, and so I see critical race theory calling that white supremacy. Oh, it's insidious. It's everywhere. It's whiteness is the norm. See, hold up, time out, time out. There's a much better way to approach this question. Is to think about again, are we really as a body trying to meet the needs of the body all equally, and are we all again sacrificing our preferences for the sake of the mm-hmm. body again? And then yeah. here's the key: not just the dominant culture needs to think that way. Paul says all Christians need to think that way. So on the one hand, yeah. if I don't like the music, I don't say if they don't change the music and according to my preferences, then it's because they're white supremacists. I don't say that. I say, you know what? I'm here to serve. And if I don't get my preferences, you know what? I can deal with that. Right? Yeah. On the other hand, you'd expect the majority culture to say, how can I lay down my preferences you know, to serve my brothers and sisters to make them feel welcome? Right. And so, I mean, I think my church, for example, 
doing a series of series of things. But one of the things we did was we began playing just more variety, more like just sort of again gospel music in our church services. But but we picked really theologically rich songs, but they were mm. clearly like black gospel songs, but they were great. So, yeah. I mean, or in the and also um, before the after before and after the services, we would play like Christian hip hop and gospel music in the lobby, right? So again, it was, as soon as you enter, you're like, oh, this is not a typical typical white church. We're mm-hmm. because why? We're because tr- because the church is still majority white. We want to be especially attuned to make sure that people that are not white feel welcome. They are yeah. welcome, yeah. but do they feel that way? So again, mm-hmm. that's we're not that's not critical race theory. Yeah. That is just Christian love. <laughs> that's yes. all it is. Yeah. God give us wisdom that we could think of ways to do that, to do the Christian love thing without um, falling into the the worldview issues that are raised by critical yeah. race theory stuff. Yeah. Uh, what else you got for me, Neil? What else do you think is important to to say? Oh man, there's so much. One, I'll say one last thing, which is that um, the other thing that critical race theory does. And it's part of, again, critical theory more broadly. Um, but it sees racism as part of a set of interlocking oppressions, a system of interlocking oppressions. Um, so that's a, a language from 1970, the Combahee River Collective Statement, which is like a black feminist statement. Um, but it, so it goes way back. But the idea is that you can't extricate racism from sexism, from heterosexism, from classism, from ableism, from all these things. And so... Actually, do you have that chart? Throw up that chart for me, Mike. Yeah, um, let's see. It's, it's a very helpful illustration here of the way that this is a this is a uh, this is a chart from Adam's book, Teaching for Diversity and Social Justice. If you can see it, it's called the Matrix of Oppression, and it lists various oppressions: racism, sexism, transgender oppression, heterosexism, classism, ableism, religious oppression, and ageism, adultism. And it lists different oppressed, uh, different categories: race, sex, gender, etc. Different dominant privileged oppressor groups and different targeted minoritized or oppressed groups and it goes through all those categories that's the way they see social reality and they're all interlocking and so they will say very explicitly that you can't just tackle racism without tackling sexism and heterosexism um and that's that's important because uh when you begin to you christians will often say well i'm going to only adopt critical race theory with respect to race. I'm not going to apply it to things like gender identity and sexuality. I mean, the Bible speaks clearly about those things. Let's say, but then, then you can't really adopt critical race theory. You can't because it will tell you, you can't address one without addressing the other. So um, I'll just, here's some quotes again from Ibram X. Kendi. He says things like, anti-racist policies cannot eliminate class racism without anti-capitalism policies. Anti-capitalism policies cannot eliminate class racism without anti-racism. To be truly anti-racist is to be feminist. To truly be feminist is to be anti-racist. We cannot be anti-racist if we are homophobic or transphobic. To be queer anti-racist is to understand the privileges of my cisgender, of my masculinity, of my heterosexuality, of their intersections. So when people say things like, I'm going to adopt critical race theory, but not with respect to these other categories, because that's not race. I'm like, have you read much critical race theory? Because they don't see oppression that way. Here's another quote from John Calmore. He writes, uh, Adher- this is great. Adherents of critical race theory see an interlocking set of oppressions 
that extend beyond the singular base of race and include the bases of gender, economic class, and sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. So and now this we, is, we yeah. see there's just all these threads coming together under mm-hmm. a critical theory. So the response to a, a Christian teaching that homosexuality is a sin is that's actually um, injustice. This is this is it's a type of racism with a different name for it, but, no, but it's no, related well, to homosexuality, right? Like I'm, well, a, actually, I'm effectively a homophobe. Yes, because I think that homosexual behavior, not identity, right? we have different discussion of that, is is a, is a sinful thing. But not only that, they will say that there's actually quite a bit of literature talking about how sexual norms that are, um, you know, say anti-homosexual norms, homophobic norms, are actually part of white supremacy. So they will say that what defines gender is actually white women. What defines sexuality is not not just men, but white men, white heterosexual men. So it's all. So if you read Bell Hooks, for example, who's a, who's a black mm-hmm. feminist, so talk a lot about um, how what we think of as uh, the, the gender roles are actually racialized gender roles. What we think of as sexuality is really heterose- white heterosexuality, white mm-hmm. sexuality. So again, to her, it's interlocking. You can't say, well, I'm going to keep the biblical teaching about sexuality and then accept critical race theory's diagnosis of race. They'll say, no, race and gender and sexuality are all intertwined. They all emerge from what Bell Hooks calls like the the white cis hetero patriarchy. I think it's usually these these long phrases of like she, white. Like, I just white. imagine, I just imagine being a college student, and you're like, but I thought da da da, and they go, you're only saying that because of your white privilege and your white cis hetero yeah. pedagogy or whatever. <laughs> and Let then I just imagine being the well, student going, I don't know, but I know I'm a bad guy and I'm never talking again. You know. Right. Yeah. But, just... but so the point is, I just want to highlight. You, you, if you say I'm going to adopt CRT, but not this. But not this idea. I'm like that. This is very central to CRT. Yeah, um, yeah. And she, sorry, it's the word. She, I keep losing it. But yeah, she has a, a whole a phrase that she uses like 20 times in her book. Yeah, so white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. It appears on, in the book um, Everyday Feminism. Uh, no, sorry, uh, Feminism for Everyone. It appears on pages four, five, 34, 40, 44, 45, 46, 51, 71, 73, 82, and 110. Not yeah. including variants like white supremacist patriarchy or patriarchal capitalism. So yeah. just a illustrating that in her mind, these were all connected. And and and, and you can, I'm sure people can think of examples personally of people who embraced this way of thinking. Uh, they, they got woke, first with respect to racial issues. They, they got woke with respect to social justice and racial justice. And then you begin to see them Adopting, and they're at first you're kind of like, well, yeah, racism is obviously wrong. We have a terrible racial history in our country. I see the need for, you know, for for uh, justice today. I want to fix the inequalities we see today. So I don't see a problem with embracing racial justice. Now we've got to be careful with that term there. But the point is, then you begin to see the, the same thinking being applied to gender and sexuality and and and, and class and other issues. And this was the link: is that this way of thinking is cannot be confined to merely race. My collaborator, Dr. Pat Sawyer, who has a PhD in education and cultural studies, he says that critical social theory, this broad way of thinking, it he we would both agree that's a worldview, not critical race theory, this narrow discipline, but you know this broad way of thinking is a worldview because it answers big worldview questions like who am I? What is the primary problem in life? How, what do I, how do I solve that problem? Right. 
So that way of thinking, he says it's it's hungry. It wants to colonize. I love that word. He uses it. It wants to colonize more and more of your intellectual territory. It wants to occupy a larger and larger place in your Mm -hmm. thinking. So when you say, I'm going to give it sort of a a, a foothold, I'm going to give it a beachhead in just this one area of race. Mm -hmm. But it's inevitably, it's naturally going to want more and more. Yeah. So I adopt it because I I, I feel that racism is a real serious issue and I want to champion truth and justice. mm -hmm. So I adopt critical race theory because it presents itself as the solution to the problem. But in the middle of that, it reframes the problem. Yeah. In, un, in, in unbiblical ways that are inaccurate, not entirely false, but inaccurate. Mm-hmm. And then because I've now reframed things, I start to realize that frame changes the way I see everything. It's like a pair of glasses. It's like, yeah. mm-hmm. are these corrective lens, lenses or are they distorting, or are they distorting lenses? Yeah. And then I start viewing everything through that. And in my view, it's just obviously unbiblical, obviously distorting actual justice. This is why we have texts in scripture about not, not having partiality to the poor. Why on earth did God have this written in the text? Why is it, it's not possible to be overly partial to the poor, right? The, the, the inequities embedded in their poorness. So until yeah. you, until they're not poor, it's partial. No, 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 there's, there's biblical justice here. This is why you don't, um, you don't answer a matter before you hear it. This is why you need witnesses. You need to prove things in, in court. And uh, anyway, th- there's just a number of things. This is why my core identity is in Christ and not in my whiteness, my blackness, my sexual preferences or temptations or whatever, you know, that these things are all part of a similar worldview that has been propagated for quite a while now. And people, they don't realize they're absorbing the worldview. Mm-hmm. They think they're just fighting for justice. Yeah. And then they end up with a new worldview, a new lens for seeing things that inevitably pushes them into um, switching evil for good in some cases in an attempt yeah. to fight for justice. I think when you said that critical race theory gets some things right, I would say, yeah, but it gets things that are sort of superficially right, but foundationally, <laughs> it's yeah. like, that's where the incompatibilities are. So when, yeah. when, you know, when people say, are they compatible? I'd say, well, no, because they're, the, the, the sort of superficial truths are compatible. There, there has true insights there, but if you look at the actual core of it, it no, it's not. And it's going to lead to destruction. So uh, what I would really urge people to do is I, I, I people will tell me, well, I get accused of being a critical race theorist, and all I'm doing is trying to work for actual justice, biblical justice. All I'm trying to raise consciousness about is actual racism. That's all I'm trying to do. And I, I, I you know, I'm not going to say you're no. I, I'll believe you. Okay, fine. I, if you really are just trying to give them a biblical perspective on actual history, on actual racism, you know, and you're being accused unfairly of being a cultural Marxist or a critical race theorist, you know, I'm sympathetic to that. I know it happens. Here's my suggestion. What what if you were to explicitly denounce not just the the label critical race theory. Don't just say, well, I'm not a critical race theorist. Do the reading. Really understand these ideas so that you can explain to people why you reject not just the label, but the actual ideas. Say, oh, I reject the idea that racism is permanent, pervasive, and ever-evolving, and insidious, and hidden behind objectivity. And I reject that. I reject the idea that our lived experiences are critical for understanding, you know, uh, racism, say, or and really more, more broadly, that my lived experience has to be judged by scripture and objective evidence. It's not, it's not valueless. Like you can know things yeah. through your lived experience. I can know that I had a protein bar for breakfast today. Mm-hmm. Have the every. But my, 
my lived experience isn't the authoritative canon of scripture. That's right. On how I'm going to, you know, interpret race issues. Yeah. And, 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 or any, yeah, or, and then more than that, I can't dismiss another person's beliefs or claims because they're not the, you know, they're not a person of color. They're not a woman. They're not, mm -hmm. no, it's truth claims are evaluated independent of our race, class, gender, whatever, right? The truth is truth regardless of who it comes from. So, but I, so, so tell them, I reject that called standpoint epistemology that says that uh, my, my knowledge is completely as conditioned by my social location. I reject that. Uh, I believe that scripture is sufficient that we can, it's perspicuous. We can, all people can understand scripture, not, not every detail of it necessarily, but the great truth of the gospel. Yeah. It's not, well, I'm not blind to it because I'm a man, I'm not blind to it because I'm, I'm yeah. a, I'm a white person. Yeah. So, yeah. Just but so my point is, if you feel like you're being treated unfairly, then what if you were to explicitly explain what you reject emphatically, right? Mm -hmm. And that might help people to see, oh, okay, if he does reject all that stuff that I'm really worried about, maybe I should listen more charitably to what he's saying about race and justice. Yeah. And I think, and I find, like I said, Mike, you can go back and listen to the first half hour. We talked very uh, extensively and honestly about race and racism. Mm -hmm. And and I do that normally, habitually, yeah. and and few people call me a Marxist. Some mm -hmm. do, okay, on occasion, but 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 it's rare because- but, and, and the I thing is, so you guys clear. should know, like I asked Neil, because I've seen to speak uh, lectures where he talked about the issues of racism in history and, and presently, and he talked about them towards the end of the talk. And I mean, I know you've done it in both ways in different settings, and I was just like, I want to talk about that first because I think the people who are going to click on this video that this is one of our blind spots that we're going to have is that we're minimizing the problems. What I'm what we're saying with critical race theory is it distorts what the problem it, it acknowledges a real problem distorts what the problem is and then offers solutions that are part of that same problem. <laughs> and um, that's the real issue there. But we've got to get that plank out of our eye where we're like, well, there is no racism or something. And, and mm. no. Now, now, how systemic is it and where is it prevalent? Those are all where the discussions are going to be. But um, OK, look, if a few questions for you, Neil, if somebody wants to learn about this, what's like one resource you would recommend? Number one, if someone's like, look, I'm on your I'm on your guys side. I just want to learn more about it. What, what's one resource? So primary source, the best primary resource is a book. Robin D'Angelo and Oslam Sensoy's book, Is Everyone Really Equal? Sensoy and D'Angelo's book, Is Everyone Really Equal? She is a critical racial and social justice educator. That's her title. Um, she's very popular. That book very clearly outlines this, this ideology applied not just to race, but to gender, sexuality, physical ability, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a, that's a very good um, book on this whole ideology. Um, I think another resource to give you the, the Christian perspective um, would be the booklet that Pat Sawyer and I wrote for Ratio Christie. It's free. It's a 20-page booklet. It's not long. Should be pretty accessible. It's it's free online. I just it's called Engaging Critical Theory and the Social Justice Movement. Again, totally free um, from Ratio mm -hmm. Christie. And now, that'll, would you, would you yeah. recommend that also for somebody who, let's say, they're thinking my buddy's totally buying into this. Oh, okay. And I'm really worried about him. Is that the resource you'd recommend for that person, yeah, or is there I, something else? I think so, yeah, because um, because it will. There are there are zero books right now that I know of. I, people have asked me. I wish I could recommend one. Um, but, and Pat and I are trying to write a full length book um, slowly. Yeah. But well, a twenty this, page book is actually mm -hmm. possibly the best thing to give because yeah, you're yeah. like, boom, here's here's the shortest. 
not a massive investment, but hopefully it's eye-opening. So give us the right. name of that again. So in, uh, Engaging Critical Theory and the Social Justice Movement. It's free online. You Google it, you'll find it immediately. Or Google Shenvi and in, Shenvi Engaging, you'll find that booklet. Um, but it would be good, I think, because it's the only book that addresses this ideology, I argue this worldview, from a biblical perspective. And then, but also it, we have a whole section on the history of race and racism. So we, we talk about why it's attractive. What does it get right? And then also address why, um, how do you, how do you engage people who are wholly bought into it? So when you have Christian friends or even non-Christian friends who have mm -hmm. uh, deeply bought into this worldview, how do you show them that it's incompatible with Christianity? So we have a whole section on that. So it'll be good. great. Great. Because our commitment here, and just a reminder to everybody is our commitment here is scripture, mm. right? We're not trying to say, here's the um, politically conservative position. Um, and here's how I'm going to try to defend it in the Bible. Uh, but, I, but in all honesty, I intend to cover more issues related to issues where our biblical worldview is overflowing onto the topics of politics. And I'm going to look at that way. This is my biblical worldview. It spills onto every area of my life. It spills onto every issue. So I'll, in the future, I'll be covering more of these kinds of things on my channel um, at, as I understand them. I'm not going to go beyond my, I can't answer every question, but as I understand these topics, I'm going to try and do that and say, look, let's, let's start with a biblical commitment and then let's analyze our culture and the politics and all that through that commitment. And this is the whole goal here. I just keep reiterating it because I feel like I just see other stuff a lot <laughs> where it feels like the commitment is, um, okay, I've, I'm, I'm dug into my general commitment to a political side. Mm -hmm. Okay, but I do think our biblical commitment pushes us onto political sides. I think it mm -hmm. very much pushes us. We just have to make sure it's the it's the biblical commitment that pushes us and not a commitment to side that's having me grab the Bible and try to pull it over with me. <laughs> that's, right, that's yeah, I, yeah, that's why I mean, I, I will fully admit and acknowledge I'm politically conservative. I'm not going to hide that, but I always focus on the ideas and the ideology because what I always say is our theology should influence our politics, but 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 I, that's the order. The theology comes Amen. first. The theology overflows into the politics. But if your theology is wrong, I want to fix that first. I don't want to fix your politics and your theology is messed up because it'll only just go back. So I want to fix the theology. So that's why I focus so much on these ideas that are so poisonous. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Amen to that. All right. Well, if you guys want to follow up with Neil, um, you could go to his website. Give us the name of your website again. And I will link it below if I haven't already. I don't remember sure. if I put it in the description. My website yet. is shenviapologetics.com. If you Google Neil Shenvi, N-E-I-L-S-H-E-N-V-I, you're going to find my website. Um, and then my, my Twitter handle also, I'm pretty active on Twitter. It's just at Neil Shenvi, N-E-I-L-S-H-E-N-V-I. So I'm on Twitter way too much, but <laughs> you can find me there. Mm -hmm. And you can stay abreast of whatever I'm reading and writing. Yeah. Great, great. And Neil's doing lots of if, other people who want to try to get him as a guest speaker or, like, or you know, interviews and stuff like that. I'm not saying he'll say yes, but but he's you've been doing, you know, the circuit. And that's how I found it was <sighs> seeing you interview on other content that I respected. Yeah, that... But uh, but I would caution you, brother, as someone who I've I think I've turned down seven interviews this week. <laughs> and I'm Wait. sure that you're getting probably an awful lot of requests right now. So yeah don't feel, don't feel obligated please but. please please give me a break <laughs> i don't do this yeah i'm yeah. kind of exhausted but i, yeah, I mean well, i i definitely the there's need. a big need well i'm the big need and i'm happy to try to speak yeah. to people and you can always my dms are open so if you have yeah. a pressing urgent need I, I friday is my day off from the kids they they're 
mother-in-law watches them. Their, their grandmother watches them. So uh, I'm free to answer hours and hours of personal emails. But Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, take the time off you need, man. You know, you, we have to have a sustainable pace, not just a sprint, right? <laughs> so... All right, man. Well, uh, thank you so much, Neil, for joining. I'm going to go ahead and I'll end the stream. You guys, God bless you. I appreciate you taking the time to be part of, of this stream. And if this content has blessed and helped you, share it with somebody else who needs it. This is this is where our biblical commitments need to protect us from weird worldview things that are going on around us. And man, it's easy if you start with scripture. So God bless you. <laughs>